1: Buddy, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today is a man who has been spending some time in the MLS Eastern Conference
2: but is now ready to talk about some Americans abroad. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. That's right. I, I've had my thoughts dwelling on the Eastern Conference, but I'm willing to expand. Let's hop across the Atlantic and, and talk about some of these other guys doing some pretty awesome things in Europe right yeah. now. It was, it was a good weekend across, maybe not across the board, but at least for the players that
1: we're going to be discussing, it yeah. was mostly uh, a pretty good time. But I do want to take a moment to talk about uh, that Eastern Conference. You and Jordan with MLS Assist did your Eastern Conference. Very specific predictions. listen to it. Enjoyed it. Uh, I feel like I need to learn more of the analytics terms because there's a few times when I was like, I'm really hoping they unpack this fully. And then you did. <laughs> so I did appreciate that. But my big question I had after listening to that whole show How many Eastern Conference teams do you think there are that you have a pretty good read on? And how many do you have the opposite of that for?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of coaching turnover in the East this year. So yeah. teams like DC United, Ben Olsen's been coaching them for forever. Now it's Hernan Losada and a completely different manager with likely a different tactical style. But we don't really mm-hmm. know how they're going to play. So DC is a wild card. Inter Miami with Phil Neville is a total wild card. The Montreal, oh, I almost did it. I did it again. I did it on the mm-hmm. show. We had to we had to start over again. <laughs> it's not the impact. Club de foot Montreal I have no idea what they're going to look like because Thierry Henry is gone. They've now promoted one of the assistants on their staff, Wilfred Nancy, to be the head coach this season. And we have no idea what, you know, how he operates tactically or how he wants to play really at all. And then Toronto is another wild card with Chris Armas moving. Yep. He kind of un-Red Bulled the Red Bulls a little bit when he took over for Jesse Marsh a couple of years ago. <laughs> But he still likes to press and he still likes to play aggressively like the Red Bulls do, or at least that's what he did in New York. Is he going to do that in Toronto when you have Michael Bradley and Josie Altidore, guys that can't really run a whole lot but are still likely going to be a part of that squad? So yeah, Taylor, I would say maybe there are four or five teams that I just don't know what to expect from in the Eastern Conference.
1: Uh, I don't want to, you know, spoil your show content too much, but of those four that you mentioned, D.C., Miami, Montreal, Toronto, if you had to pick one team, if you had to get on the bandwagon of one for having a successful season, maybe making the playoffs, who would that be?
2: It's got to be Toronto. They just have more talent than D.C. or Miami or Montreal. They have a more established squad. They have Pozuelo, the reigning MLS MVP from last year. He is phenomenal. And if Chris Armas can figure out a way to use Alejandro Pozuelo in a constructive way where not everything falls on his shoulders, but he still has the ability to run the show, Toronto are going to be hard to beat every single week. So Toronto almost just based on the talent that they have, but that still doesn't mean that I have a great idea of what Chris Armas is actually going to do.
1: That was a well-reasoned and clearly articulated answer. Unfortunately, it was wrong, and you get minus (laughs) one points here because the correct answer was DC United. As a DC fan, I, I, I need them. To be at least somewhat fun this time around, I've,
2: it's possible I, they've got a young new manager. I mean, <laughs> that's he's, where we are. He's it's got maybe such possible. a possible. He's got yeah. That's that is kind of how I feel. He's got a very limited <laughs> coaching background, which isn't great. Like you, you kind of want a bigger sample size, but also it means there are so many unknowns, and unknowns are kind of fun, at least in preseason. Unknowns during the season are less fun. So who knows?
1: We'll see. Who knows? We shall see. Uh, we've we will be doing much more MLS uh, chat on future TSS shows. But right now we are going to talk Americans abroad. And Joe, since you mentioned uh, Chris Armis on Red Bulling, the Red Bulls and on Red Bulling, the Jesse Marsh work at uh, the Red Bulls. Why don't we start with a Jesse Marsh coach team?
2: Oh, let's do it. It's RB Salzburg time, baby. The first player we're here to talk about is my player, one, one that I researched. I have no affiliation with Brendan Aronson. That's the guy we're going to talk about. He started, had an assist and played 77 minutes for RB Salzburg in a 3-1 win over SK Sturm Graz in the Austrian Bundesliga. I tweeted about this, Taylor, and I know, I know you saw it because he quote, t- quote tweeted it with another player, but Brendan Aronson had a really, really good game. One of the better games I've seen from him in an RB Salzburg shirt.
1: Uh, So I want to talk about this in a broad context first before we get into the specific moments, because Brendan Aronson, seems to be a player and i can't tell if this is just because we're both pretty positive about him or maybe just positive about americans abroad in general but it seems like more often than not we're saying positive things about him he's doing constructive things there's aspects of his game that are developing and then there's just kind of big time moments as we saw this weekend am i just only focusing on the positive or are you in the same boat that it seems like he is just kind of really finding his form and fitting in
2: really well pretty quickly I'm in the same boat. He's on an upward trajectory. He moves from the Union, goes to Salzburg, and he he shows some flashes early on a couple months ago when he's first getting used to the team. He's coming off the bench, maybe starting in some cup competitions. But now, especially coming off of the international break where he did some really awesome things for the U.S. men's national team. He had a goal against Jamaica, combining with Josh Sargent a little bit in the attack in the second half of that game. And then he comes off the bench against Northern Ireland on the other side, on the right wing, and does some nice things in that game. And then he has an assist over the weekend on Sunday against Sturm Graz. And, I mean, he's doing a lot of things right right now. He's getting consistent minutes. He's a regular starter. Things are trending up in Brendan Aronson world.
1: Yeah. And if Salzburg did not get the win uh, on the day, they remain top of the table, but only one point ahead of Rapid Vienna. Uh, and I think also Graz then jump into the top three with a win there. So it's not even like we're talking about a bottom of the table team that he sort of felt confident and felt dominant upon. It is a good team and his team equally good and Brendan Aronson on the day very good, at least from the footage that I have seen so far.
2: Yeah. So I want to talk about the assists that he had in this game. It's in the fifth minute. Salzburg are already up one to nothing. And it's a kind of a classic Salzburg attacking sequence, a classic Red Bull attacking sequence. They play long out of their own half then they win the ball in the attacking half. It's that route one direct soccer that the Red Bull brand is kind of built around in a lot of ways, at least. So they win the ball in the attacking half thanks to a good tackle from Mergem Berisha. And then Aronson, while this has all happened, he's moved inside from the left wing. He was starting as the left attacking midfielder in a 4-2-2-2 or kind of a 4-4-2, depending on how you want to look at it. He'd moved inside from the left wing into the middle of the field, as he often does in that left-sided attacking midfield role. Berisha wins that duel, takes a quick touch, and then plays the ball forward to Aronson. Aronson continues his run all the way over to the right side of the field. As he's running to catch up with the ball, he checks his shoulder, sees that there are multiple runners in the box. One of them is Daka, who's already got one goal and would go on to score a hat trick in this game. Aronson looks up, checks his shoulder, plays this beautiful first touch out swinging cross with his right foot, picks out Daka on the far side of the box, and it's a diving header. It's a Robin Van Persie-esque diving header from Patson Daka. But it's a beautiful finish, obviously, but it's a beautiful ball as well with the technique, with the vision that Aronson shows in that moment, the run. Every piece of this move was on point, and that kind of represented Aronson's performance, Taylor. He only really lost the ball one time in this game. He had a tight performance. He had a creative performance. He pressed while he was aggressive. He did a lot of things well in this one.
1: There were two moments uh from the weekend, at least two that jump immediately to mind, that I kind of noted as being a thing that happens when you're in form, when you're confident. We'll talk about the other one in a little bit. But this is one, this assist from Brendan Aronson is one to me because it's sort of, it is him a little bit running away because it's played into the channel. So he's kind of running at a diagonal. But then to spot this ball, it requires a lot of power. You got to put a ton of power behind this ball to get it to land exactly as he does. But it does require that vision and then the technical ability to sort of hit it the way he does to put it exactly where he does it's it all speaks to i think a level of confidence that is always very encouraging to see from a young player especially a young american player to just back himself to hit this ball and trust that it's going to get there and that's exactly how it went down
2: the technique really is phenomenal and he looks confident right he looks like he knows exactly what he can do and he's willing to go out and try things and execute them right now i was listening to extra time and i i or was there a their, their international episode, I guess they're doing that once a month now, and they were interviewing Sebastian Legette on that show, and Legette was talking about the national team, and I believe he called Brendan Aronson crafty. And this is kind of a crafty play from Aronson. With the first touch, he doesn't wait and slow things down and then dribble forward and then try to thread the ball over to that left side of the box. No, he says I can make this play happen. That's the confidence you're talking about. That's the craftiness that Legette was talking about. To bend that ball in first time and put it on a dime on DACA's head. I mean, it is... It's just beautiful, Taylor. It really is beautiful. And this play made the rounds on Twitter. But if you haven't seen it, I would, I would recommend checking it out because it's a phenomenal goal and a great ball from Aronson. I agree entirely. Also
1: credit to our friends at Extra Time for, uh, going all the way to Sebastian Legette in California for their international show. Uh, a credit to them <laughs> for, for, for going far, far abroad to find Sebastian Legette. Uh, I kid. I love them. Uh, what <laughs> else would you like to talk about from
2: Brendan Aronson's performance this weekend? So I want to really emphasize how, how willing Aronson is to try things. I know I've said it a couple mm. times and we've talked about it before. Sometimes early on it looked like he was, he was trying things, but they weren't coming off. And that's okay because if you try things, and, and Jesse Marsh loves this. He calls it quick play. I've said this on the show before. He, he encourages his players to try things. So even if they're not coming off, even if Aronson's trying a back heel against the sideline and it goes out of bounds or whatever, Marsh is emphasizing that no, it's okay to try things. We want to play this way, play creatively even within our direct aggressive offensive identity. Aronson has continued to try things and now, now they're almost coming off. Now they're sometimes they are coming off, like on the assist or later in this game in the 60th minute, he had a really nice outside of the right foot ball into the box that nearly set up DACA for, I believe, a fourth goal. It would have been for him at this point. Aronson's on that left side of the box and he threads the ball through with the outside of his foot. And it's a beautiful pass. He's seeing things, Taylor, that I just don't think a lot of other players on Salzburg see, or maybe even more importantly for the national team. I think Aronson sees things that, players with the senior team just don't see we could almost we could almost interpret that from the goal he scored where he heads the ball forward to Sargent against jamaica and then makes that run into the box how many other players and we don't know this is more of a rhetorical question but how many other players would would head that ball how many players would make that play i don't know but i'm encouraged by how willing aronson is to try things and even more encouraged that a lot of them are coming off right now
1: yeah, in my mind, it speaks to him being just properly schooled in the Red Bull system that he, I think, is always looking for the forward pass. He's always looking for how do we turn this into attack? How can yes, I make something yeah. happen from this? And that sort of consistent willingness to roll the dice. I guess the the difference being that if you are being taught and encouraged to do that, it's not really a roll of the dice. It's sort of like being told to roll the dice almost. And I just think <laughs> that he can then have that confidence, have that knowledge that I should take some risks. I should try these opportunities and see what happens. I enjoy that he's willing to do that. Uh, I hope that that continues to be an aspect of his career as he moves up and maybe goes to a club in a slightly more competitive league. Will he be, will he be able to get away with that? Uh, only time will tell. My only other thing I wanted to note on him from uh, this second clip is that it reminds me a little bit, this is a strange analogy analogy to draw, but the uh like the Black Panther suit in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that like <laughs> absorbs energy and then gives the wearer like that much more power, that's a, an element of Brendan Aronson's game to me because in this sequence I see him get a little bit of a kick, I see him get like a bump in the back, he he's dealing with the physicality of the defense and almost then turns that into this like I'm going to do more, I'm going to cut back, I'm going to dribble some more. Then I'm going to find a pass. Like I appreciate that he doesn't get bogged down in the physicality, he handles that and then continues to play his game. So again, I thought it was a very strong performance from a very young player.
2: And you kind of hinted at it there in in one way. I just want to say, I think two areas that Aronson could improve, because that's something we try to do on this show. We want to provide things for for listeners to watch for and see how these players are continuing to develop. With Aronson, one is just improving his his strength. He still gets unscuffed. They call it little brothered. He kind of gets shoved around a little bit. He gets pushed (laughs) like a little brother would by an older brother, right? That's a very good image to have in your head when you're trying to think about how Aronson struggles sometimes to deal with the physicality of the Austrian Bundesliga. So that's one thing to watch. Does he get a little bit stockier or at least a little bit stronger and, and steadier in his build? And then second, I think he can find the ball more. Right now, when he is making things happen and he is creating, I think there are opportunities for him to find the ball more, coming inside at the right times or staying wide, just working within that system to get more touches. He wasn't very good at finding the ball with the Union as a 10 in a diamond, and he hasn't greatly improved that skill from what I've seen so far. He's good with the ball when he gets it, but there's room for him to actually have more opportunities for him to show what he can do when he's on the ball. So those are two quick points that I'm going to be watching for. Maybe you and listeners can watch for them as well for Aronson down the line. I will do exactly that. Anything else from Brendan Aronson, Mr. No, Lowne? that's it. I've exhausted my Brendan Aronson All right. uh, thoughts.
1: All right. Then I will take us to Sergio Dest and Barcelona, who got a 1-0 win over Valladolid yesterday on Monday. Uh, that puts Barcelona one point behind Atletico Madrid. Worth noting, Barcelona did not score until the 90th minute. Sergio Dest was off in the 88th or 89th, I think. So he was not on the field, but I'm going to say was Sort of involved in the goal. This is definitely me probably seeing him with red, white and blue glasses, but I'm okay with it. Uh, But we'll talk about how he was indirectly involved in the goal later. First, I wanted to explain a little bit about what I saw from his game plan. And broadly speaking, Barcelona's game plan, because I saw Valladolid set up in a 3-5-2 theoretically, but very much more so a 5-4-1 defensively in a low block. And you had five across the top of the 18 usually with a kind of a midfield four screening them and then the one outlet, uh, up top, which is good in terms of Barcelona had a lot of possession. Serginho Dest was on the lot of the ball in Valladolid's half and especially in Valladolid's like defensive third, but there wasn't A ton to be created and I think a big part of that was that vital lead with that back five were able to spread out and they had one wing back in the channel on either side and so you really weren't able to get many overloads. It was a thing that Barcelona kept trying to do was sort of recycling possession to try to create a 1v1 attacking scenario out wide and they just kind of kept not being able to create it so they would try and try. Dest on the ball occasionally pulls it off and that's one of the clips I think I sent to Joe is him finally getting into a 1v1 scenario when he does take on the defender, does end up getting the ball in, it ends up not, I think, uh, being put on frame, but it's still a dangerous ball, and I liked it just because it was in the second half, it's in like the 60th minute or thereabouts, and it's him kind of consistently looking for it. And the one time it's on, Sergio Dest goes for it, and we've wanted to see him be more attacking. So I felt like in a game where the opponent was set up specifically to cancel out the sort of advancing fullbacks of Barcelona, the wingbacks, I should say nowadays, uh, th- that he was still able to look for it and spot that one opportunity did make me pretty happy.
2: And that's something I think we could see for the U.S. against CONCACAF teams or really any team that mm-hmm. wants to sit deeper and either play a 5 for a 1, play, you know, a, f- a 5 3 2, whatever, play whatever defensive shape and, and really pack numbers into their own defensive third. Dest is a guy who can unlock teams, who can expose you 1v1. And having guys like that so important when you are trying to break down a low block. In this game for Barcelona, they weren't able to do that a lot. They weren't able to generate a lot of attacking chances. But having someone like Dest, if you're Barcelona or the men's national team for the US, having someone like that who can break you down in a very small, brief moment that you've been waiting 80 minutes for or 70 minutes for or 60 minutes for, that's really important. And that, that's one reason why Dest's 1v1 dribbling ability is so valuable to a team.
1: Yes. So that was, that was very valuable, but of equal slash greater value, I would say in this game particularly was Dest getting more familiar with The responsibilities, both defensive and offensive, when it comes to playing that right wing back role, because he was getting much further forward, much more quickly than we've seen in the last couple games, or at least since last we spoke of him uh, playing for Barcelona. But also what I saw was him like not immediately collapsing back to defense, but waiting to see how a play would develop. And and what I mean is that if Vitaly would regain possession in midfield, like maybe 25 yards from their own goal, even if Nacho Martinez, uh, who was the left wing back for Vitaly, if he would go bombing forward, Dest would sort of track that run, but be aware of what was happening in the middle of the field because there were times when Barca would counter-press, win the ball back, and then Dest would be in that same attacking position instead of, being overly focused on defense. So I thought that was interesting to see him just cheat forward a few times. And then on occasion when Barcelona wouldn't win the ball back and Valladolid would be able to attack, then he would track really, really aggressively and make sure to get back into a good spot. I never saw him get caught out. I never saw them exploit the Barcelona right-hand side because Sergio Des was too far forward. Obviously, he has the pace to be able to do that. But I think the awareness... And the evaluation ability to know when to stay forward, when to check back a little bit, and when to fully track back uh, was a development that I don't think I've seen as much from him in the past. So to see it this weekend, or I guess on Monday, uh, made me pretty pleased as well.
2: Yeah, and we've talked about how under Ronald Koeman, Barcelona defend in a in a man-oriented kind of way. They'll have mm-hmm. – they don't play out of a man-marking system necessarily, but across the back line, if someone's in your zone – it's kind of your job to step forward and and deal with them, to mark them and then to fall back when they move out of your zone or whatever the situation is. Dest on that right side, it's oftentimes those mighty Dembele or Lionel Messi that's on his side. And if you're Dest, you're kind of screwed, right? Because those players don't Mm -hmm. really defend a whole lot. And so in the past, in the past, I think Dest has had issues either being fully turned, like switched on himself or communicating with those other players on his side. And sometimes he's gotten exposed down that right side because of the lack of communication or because of a mental lapse on his own. In this game, from the clips you sent me, at least Taylor, that wasn't there at all. And that's what you're talking about. He was on defensively. He was, he had his head on a swivel. He had his hips on a swivel. He was moving back when Barcelona lost the ball, not in an overly anticipative way. I don't know if that's a word Benjamin mm-hmm. pretended is, <laughs> but. He had the timing right and it looked fluid. It looked natural. He didn't look out of place defending for this team. And that's a really encouraging sign for me.
1: It is. It absolutely is, especially with the Barcelona team that in that back three, they had Frankie de Jong central. He did have more license to step out and get to be part of the midfield, which meant uh, Mengiza, the right center back, would slide over to cover. And that left a ton of space down that right-hand side. You're right, Messi in the first half. It was uh, Dembele in the second. Neither one of them going to do a ton of defensive work, a ton of tracking back until maybe that second stage once you've kind of slowed down the counter Vitaly have a little bit of possession, then those attackers will come in. But I think that's where Dest being so switched on to those moments when he did need to get back and did need to cover either in the in the center or out wide were so important. And I think him tracking Nacho Martinez, but then when Barcelona won the ball back, sprinting forward and making Martinez then track him back or Alatza come out to try to deal with him, I think he wore down that defense a little bit. And what I'm leading to is, though he substituted in the 87th minute, it was, um, at that point, Vidalid have picked up a straight red card to uh, Plano, one of their central midfielders. So now they're dealing with a 4-4-1 shape, and you don't have nearly as much presence out wide. I think you also have a lot of tired legs from how kind of open and attacking Barcelona were at times. So when you have uh, Puj come on, it ends up being him and Frankie de Jong combining down that channel where Dest had been Throughout the game, but now there is space because you don't have that extra defender. You can't spread as as far wide, and they are able to create the overload they were trying to create the whole game. It's just now they're able to. The ball comes in on a cross, it's flicked on, and then Dembele's at the back post for the goal. But I do think... It was the vital lead red card opening some opportunities up for Barcelona because it felt like at that moment, moment they weren't going to be able to find a way through. They didn't change things fundamentally. It's just that fewer people on the field means more space to operate, and that's exactly what, what Barcelona did. So not on the field, but I would say that's not necessarily a negative when it comes to when the goal is scored. So overall, I'm saying a positive game for Serginho Dest and certainly for Barcelona. Dest
2: walked so that Barcelona could run. That's what you're there saying, we basically, go. you know? You that know? is
1: exactly what I'm saying, <laughs> uh, except not nearly as cleverly as you, uh, Mr. Lowry. Uh, we've talked about two Americans abroad. We've still got several more to be discussed, but right now let's take a break to hear from today's
0: sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to michelobeultra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu.
1: We are back. We've talked about an American in Austria. We've talked about an American in Spain. Joe, what American should we talk about next?
2: We are going to an American in England I, I have right. trouble waiting this long to talk about him. It's Daryl DK. <laughs> it's gotta be Daryl yeah, DK. Is. He started and scored both of Barnsley's goals in their two one win over Luton Town over the weekend. Or was that shoot, that was yesterday, wasn't it? Wow, time mm-hmm. time flies when you're watching Daryl DK, am I right? He did not start in right? their game
1: this weekend. It, you it certainly does. He didn't start this weekend, but he does come on in the one to one draw with Reading, and I think doesn't score but is involved in the build up to the goal after coming on. So I think they end up getting a penalty in that one, and I think he's involved. So so a little bit of credit there.
2: Significantly more so uh, this past weekend. Yes, yes. Daryl DK me, Monday, stays. Rather. Yeah, Monday. I knew what you meant. Daryl DK stays golden. Everybody, he stays golden. He started go. up top in the three-four-three in the classic Barnsley three-four-three, playing the classic Barnsley style of soccer. Taylor, I looked this up to, to do some prep on this game in general, and then to <laughs> dig into Daryl DK. Uh, yeah. Barnsley, according to Google, had a forty-seven percent pass accuracy percentage. I have oh in my boy. notes because I looked at that last night and I was meaning to oh check it God. again before we recorded, it and I did, but my note from last night is still there. I have in all caps: "Is that right?" question mark Because I have never seen a pass accuracy stat that low before. Because usually you see eighty percent or eighty five or somewhere in the seventies at least. Forty seven percent. That is. The perfect representation of how Barnsley want to play. They play aggressive. They play long balls. They play hopeful, but they play mm-hmm. so that they can win those second balls to the third balls, the fourth balls, whatever it is. They're willing to play head tennis so that they can win the ball back higher up the field and just gain that field yeah. position. And Daryl DK continues to be the perfect fit for their number nine in that system. They've got a great record since he's joined them, and he continues to play very, very well up top as that nine. I think, Joe, if you told me you watched a game in which a team had
1: 47% pass accuracy, I would say they probably did not win. If you then told me they won, I think my response would be, was it Barnsley? Because that does <laughs> feel like the way that they have been playing from what we've seen of them lately. And then I think also if you told me that an American scored, then I would know for sure it was Barnsley oh, because yes. they've been doing a lot of that as well.
2: <laughs> That's so true. DK has been a monster since he's gone. He's been phenomenal in that attack, scoring goals left and right, And I want to talk about one of the goals he scored in this game. And I'll briefly mention the second one. But I really want to focus on the first goal. It's in the 27th minute. Barnsley win the ball off of a Luton goal kick. So they win the ball right around midfield. DK makes a run in between Luton's center backs. Colley Woodrow plays the ball forward to DK. DK takes a great touch to get the ball onto his right foot. Holds a center back off with his left arm. And kind of just absorbs the contact. And then just slots the ball home with his right foot. He makes a really, really challenging play look incredibly routine from the run, which was perfect in between the center backs to the touch. I believe he took it with the inside of his left foot to get the ball over to his right foot. So he could shoot that touch. He made look so simple and then he absorbs the contact and holds off that defender. Like it's nothing like it's no problem. And then just bangs the ball home from an incredibly low percentage spot on the field, right past the keeper into the bottom left side of the net it's it's a ridiculous goal, Taylor. It is a ridiculous goal. Yeah, I
1: mean, first of all, it's Daryl DK, so when you say he held them off almost effortlessly, I'm inclined to say it was completely effortlessly because <laughs> yeah. he's got that strength. But then I think this is the other player I was talking about earlier, uh, with Brendan Aronson and and the confidence that like this finish to me was a confident goal scorer believing they're going to score. And when you see, when you have a breakaway, sometimes that attacker will be in their head about, should I play it here? Should I play it there? And if you're trying to figure it out as you're shooting, you're going to miss. Because fundamentally, if as you're striking the ball, your thought is, I hope I don't mess this up. You are, I've said this before. I'll say it again. You're literally saying, I will mess this up as you're sa- as you're shooting the ball. And I think that's what can happen. But when you are in the run of form that Daryl DK is in, you sort of, can hold that defender off and you just know your angle. You know the rhythms, you know the patterns, you know how you want to strike the ball, when you want to strike the ball, and you back yourself to do it. And it's a really clinical finish and he makes it look so easy. And I think a huge part of that is just being form, being confident and backing himself to, I know, the, I know it's muscle memory. I know how to do this. I know where it needs to be. And then he's able to finish. It's cleverness to be in the right position. It's strength to hold off the player. And then it's technical ability and confidence to get the actual goal.
2: Daryl DK is kind of breaking expected goals right now. The sample size is really small, but he scored seven goals in 849 championship minutes. That's 0.74 goals per 90, and that's first among players with 700-plus minutes in the championship this year. So he's got a better goal-scoring rate, just to make that very clear, than any player in the championship who has played more than 700 minutes. That's incredible. But even more incredible than that, DK has taken 22 total shots in seven of them have turned into goals for Barnsley. So he's basically scoring a goal every three shots. That just doesn't happen. And he did something similar in Orlando as well. Again, the sample size, even between his time with Orlando last year and now with Barnsley, still really small. I don't think he's even played 2,000 minutes yet, total pro-wise in his career. But the rate at which Daryl Dike is converting goals is ridiculous. It's XG defying. Like the model is built such that, you know, players don't finish in the way that Daryl Dike is right now. They don't score goals at the rate that he's scoring them right now. And this was a conversation before he made that move to Barnsley. And people were wondering, you know, can he continue scoring goals at the rate he did in Major League Soccer? It, statistically, it doesn't seem likely. And he's doing it. And it's kind of blowing my mind.
1: Yeah, I am I, I'm, I'm with you entirely including that I feel sort of well, I don't know if this is where you are, but where I am is like I don't feel nervous about that statistical anomaly or the idea that he's so so much outperforming, because if it were those like top corner rockets that he hit previously, if that were happening every time, it would feel like okay, this is not a thing that he can sustain. You can't have inch perfect laser shots every single time. But this goal does feel like uh, like the type of goal that we can expect him to at least get that shot off to know his angle to trust himself to finish. So whereas there are those occasions when a player is outperforming their expected goals that I have some concerns and I wait for the other shoe to drop. Here, it it feels like it, well, could dry up because of the way Barnsley play. And if they can kind of, if other teams can find a way to deal with DK, then somebody else has to step up and Barnsley might find themselves in trouble. But for right now, it seems like he should be and will be capable
2: of continuing this form, hopefully for the foreseeable future. I hope he continues the form. I don't entirely agree with With kind of your comfort level. I guess I'm a little bit more uncomfortable just because, man, the finish on that first goal is Mm -hmm. so it's so hard. It's so hard. And I I don't even think Daryl DK scores that, you know, five times out of 10. I I don't think the regular striker is going to score that a whole lot. And so I think if DK is in that situation again, I'm not so sure he'll hit that. He'll hit it on target. But still, man, he does score another goal in this game. It's it's DK making a run in behind as Barnsley pushed forward out of midfield. He forces a center back back. He creates a shot for Collie Woodrow. Woodrow takes a shot, and then DK just follows it up after the, the Luton Town goalkeeper parries it away. DK just follows it up and crashes the ball home. Sequences like that, encourage me in addition to just how ridiculous Daryl DK is at soccer right now sequences (laughs) like that that are, are more repeatable and allow him to create chances for himself based off of what his teammates are doing that that encourages me but either way man it's time to just sit back and enjoy the ride that is Daryl DK right now.
1: All right. I, I think we should. I think we should enjoy any American who's getting assists or getting multiple goals. That That is always fun. Uh, the player that I'm going to talk about next uh, is hopefully uh, due for some goals in the near future. You ready to talk, Timothy Weah? Oh, yeah, baby. Bring it on. All right. So, Timothy Weah, uh, we talked about this a little bit on the Weekend Review, Graham and I did. Uh, Leo with the 1-0 win on the road against PSG. That keeps Leo top of the table on 66 points, PSG in second on 63. So this could have been the game that PSG pull it back, go top of the table, and it feels like that's kind of the end from there. They go on to win the, the, the season, and they may well do that. They may end up winning uh, the French League again. But right now, Leal are on top. Leal do have a bit of an issue, though, because goal scorer Jonathan David does have to sub out pretty much immediately after scoring in this game. Uh, I made the argument yesterday that the injury sort of helps him score in that it keeps him behind the run of play to arrive late to finish. So that's good. The bad thing for Lille and for Jonathan David and for Canada would be that uh, he then had to be subbed out. Uh, the report is that he tore right ankle uh, ligaments, so he will be out for several weeks that is Theoretically opens the door for Timothy Ware to take his starting spot, uh, and sort of prove that he can handle that level of responsibility. Worth noting that Leo play at least this past weekend. They're in a 4-4-2. It was Jonathan David. It was uh, Ikone with him. Icone sometimes drops in to be like sort of an attacking midfielder. Burak Yomaz does sub on as well in this game, is a more conventional target striker, and that's where he goes when he subs on for Renato Sanchez, who'd been out on the right, and then Timothy Wea goes out onto that right-hand side. So that is also a thing we may see is Burak Yomaz. I just bring that up, not to be a, a, a wet blanket, not to be a downer, but just to point out that I've seen a lot of the narrative be now. Timothy is going to step up and start every single game, and he might well do that, but he might not. And I don't think that that's necessarily a sign that he hasn't developed enough or he isn't in the coach's plans. It's just that there are other options there that we shouldn't overlook. Uh, Burak Maas has been injured, I think, only just recently came back. So I think that's probably part of his lack of minutes as well. But... We did get Timothy Weah on the field a little bit. Joe,
2: did you see anything, uh, from, from Weah this past weekend that you particularly enjoyed? Man, I, I liked both of the clips that you sent me. He shows, and I, I, I'll let you talk through them in a little bit more detail, but mm-hmm. Timothy Weah continues to play like timothy way. he continues to find space to make aggressive runs in behind which is a really nice attribute that gray Burhalter likes i'm sure he continues to move well off the ball and look up and find good passes in the attack he's also a guy who's willing to try to make things happen in the final third and i think he did some of that in this game against psg even coming off the bench against a really really good team i was encouraged by his performance like i've been encouraged by all the players that we've talked about so far yeah I think that's fair. Uh,
1: the two, the two moments in particular that we should spotlight would be when it, it is basically him doing a lot of running up top, trying to get open, trying to find those gaps. And on one occasion, he finds one. On the other one, he basically creates one. Uh, he runs down a kind of 50-50 ball. He, I'm not going to say out muscles Marquinhos because Marquinhos won that battle a couple of different times, but he does sort of outmaneuver him to get into a better position. He's on the ball. He spots the run through the middle. I think it's Renato Sanchez. I might be wrong on that one. And it's a great ball in it's poked away at the very last second. And that's why he's not able to get the shot off. But if it's not poked away, that's a, at the very least going to be a driven shot on goal from like 15 yards out. It feels like that could have easily been another goal for Leo, but it's a good final last-ditch defensive play from PSG. But then he has another similar moment uh, later on in the game, in the like I think the final 10 or 15 minutes, where he's played in wide, and his first touch is to play it back central. His teammate, I think, has the shot go either right at the goalkeeper or just wide. Uh, But either way, it's him sort of being unselfish and spotting the open passes, the smart passes. I shouldn't even say open, I should say just the smart pass that has the potential to be something, and though there's a defender there, or he has to split two defenders to make that pass happen, he goes for it, and he generally pulls it off. So both of those plays made me feel like we could see him out wide and that won't be the worst thing, but also his movement. I think we will see him at least occasionally as that starting number nine for Lille. And I don't think they'll lose too much because he has a lot of the mobility and a lot of the work rate that I think we've come to expect from Jonathan David.
2: It's funny. I'm just thinking about, you know, would I prefer to see Tim Weah up top as part of a front two or would I prefer to see him on the wing And to be honest with you, Taylor, I don't know that I really have a preference just because I think he's such Mm -hmm. a versatile player. Do you have a spot you want to see him at while Jonathan David is out and recovering or are you kind of in the same boat that I'm in? I think I'm in the same boat that you are.
1: I think starting, getting minutes is of the utmost importance. Yeah. I think when, I, I would say I'd rather see him up front as that central striker, except that, and maybe this is where you're coming from, the expectation is that we'll see him maybe more likely as a wide attacker for the U.S., and yeah. so maybe playing there and getting some reps there wouldn't be the worst, but I think... Either way, I'm okay with it, just because I think it's going to help him develop. It's going to make him a more ingrained part of that Leal team. Not to say that he isn't already, but just once you're starting more regularly and maybe getting a goal or two, I think that helps remind people that you can do some stuff. I also think his defensive work, the effort is good. Sometimes he's not able to really hold the ball up. Sometimes he's not able to really put in a a good tackle. Occasionally he would challenge and sort of lose that little brother shoving match, and then... (laughs) then he's kind of out of the play. But I thought even then his willingness to work off the ball was was so important to what Leo were trying to do. So I think that's my indirect way of saying either position I am okay with just as long as he's playing.
2: Yeah, and that's a good spot to be in, right? Tim Weah is a regular player, not necessarily a regular starter, but a regular minute getter for the leaders in Liga. That is, that's awesome. And I don't think we've yep. talked about that enough. I don't think other folks are talking about that enough. I think if he was a regular starter, everyone will be talking about it a lot more. But he's a very important player on that squad. And they right now are still favorites to win the title in the league. And that's a huge story in and of itself for Lille.
1: Yeah, I I think that's sort of the uh, the uh issue in a nutshell is that I don't think most people it reminds me of Leicester when they won the Premier League that year and I'll speak for myself but I just kind of kept waiting and yeah, you waiting don't believe and it waiting. yeah you and just it, don't believe it yeah and then eventually in like late April it was like oh there's two games left I think they're gonna win <laughs> like I think that's the case with Lille is that it just always feels like PSG have so much money have so much talent that Lille drop a, a, a result here they get a draw there and suddenly they're overtaken and even if they lose the league by one point or two points they've still lost the league so I think as Leo continue to play and continue to stay uh at the top of the table, then I think we'll see much more interest, much more coverage of them. And certainly, if Timothy Weah is scoring, we'll see much more coverage and interest from an American perspective. But for now, Joe, I think I've exhausted all of my thoughts on Timothy Weah. Anything else from the French League before we move on? No, I'm good, man. All right, then we will be back to discuss our final two players in just a moment. But first, a word from our
0: sponsors.
1: So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Joe, so we've been
2: sort of all over Europe at this point. Where are we going next? I want to stay France adjacent and head to Belgium to talk Mark McKenzie, who started for Genk in their 3-2 win over Leuven in the league there in Belgium. McKenzie started as the left-sided center back in a back four for Genk. He's back in the lineup, which is encouraging because he did go through a stretch where he just wasn't playing as much. He was more of a bench option. I don't know if he's a, a firmly established starter again. But in this game, I thought he was, I thought he was really good. He wasn't at fault for either of the goals that Genk gave up. So that's a good sign. That's the first thing that I checked for. And he wasn't really at fault for any major attacking moments from Leuven, which is, which is awesome. He was much more of a defensive asset than he was a hindrance, which I think is kind of his game. He's, he's a really solid, strong defensive player. He covers a lot of ground. He steps well into midfield and wins the ball. He has composure in those moments as well. And in offensively, he's still growing, but defensively in this game, I thought he was phenomenal. So let's talk about where he's still growing and where he has grown because with Mark McKenzie,
1: when we talk about the possible depth or like the possible starting center backs for the US national team. I feel like he tends to be in that conversation, but also it tends to be sort of like, oh, and Mark McKenzie's also in the conversation. Like, I don't think of him as in the kind of top four that people normally go to with with a quickness. So I'm wondering if you would agree with that, first of all. And second of all, if you saw reasons for that being the case uh, this past weekend or if you saw reasons for how he has improved and thus maybe should have risen up that depth chart a little bit.
2: I'm not sure how much he's improved since he's getting to Belgium. And no. I that sounds bad, but I, I think developing and getting minutes and having to adjust to a change in environment, that's hard, right? That's a challenging thing to experience. Some players are going to adapt better than others. And I could just flat out be missing areas of his game that have improved since he moved from the Union over to Genk. So that's sort of the disclaimer there. But as far as his standing in the center back depth chart for the U.S. men's national team, I think right now there's a reason we didn't see him get called up to the the friendlies in March that we just saw against Jamaica and Northern Ireland. Part of that could be related to COVID. We don't know, but I look at John Brooks and say there's no way Mark McKenzie is ahead of John Brooks or Aaron Long, or or even Chris Richards at this point, or probably Tim Ream. And that's four strong right there in the center back depth chart already. Then you've got Matt Miazga as well, who's certainly making a push for for that top four just because he's a player I think that Berhalter knows and trusts. And then, I mean, we even saw guys like Eric Palmer Brown get called up ahead of Mark McKenzie. And I don't think that's as warranted. I wonder if there is a COVID thing there. But Mark McKenzie right now, he just doesn't hit a lot of passes. He doesn't really pass the ball forward for Genk. And he did some of that with the union. But under Jim Curtin and Ernst Tanner and the style that they've built there in Philadelphia, they don't rely on a lot of solid, on-the-ground, line-breaking, John Brooks-type passes. And so Mark McKenzie just hasn't really had a huge chance to show that, or he hadn't in Philadelphia, and he's not really showing it right now for Genk. He doesn't break lines. He doesn't necessarily play these aggressive low, accurate forward passes. There was a moment in this game where he deliberately didn't break lines to one of Genk's central midfielders. He had a chance to split the ball through, and he didn't play it. And Maybe it wasn't as on as it looked like to me, but I see moments like that, and I still have that little alarm bell pop off in my head saying, man, I guess my my alarm bell can talk. That's a little bit weird, but I guess the (laughs) alarm bell is saying, yeah, maybe this is why he's not as much in that conversation about top center backs for the U S because he doesn't always play those aggressive forward on the ground passes. I mean, sometimes you gotta have the sentient alarm bell It's an important <laughs> feature. <laughs> You're uh, so right.
1: So then let's say, let's say Greg Berhalter in the very, very likely scenario that he's listening to this show. Just of kidding. course. Yeah. Uh, but if he were like, what would be, or if Greg Berhalter calls you Joe and says like, what's the thing you saw from Mark McKenzie this weekend that you want people to know about? What should we know about when it comes to things he's doing, how he's playing that could be an asset to the team?
2: Yeah. Mark McKenzie, I do see as a guy who would fit very well in the Aaron Long mold for the national team where Aaron Long's job, I think everybody kind of knows it. It's to make John Brooks's life easier, right? That's his job. It's to make sure that John Brooks can do John Brooks things. Mark McKenzie and his defensive mobility, I think would pair very well with a more offensive minded center back. You ideally want complete center backs. You want Virgil van Dijk's but in this case, especially early on in Mark McKenzie's career, you say, okay, you bring a lot of defensive value to this group. And I pull out a moment in the fifth minute of Genk's win over the weekend where Mark McKenzie is stepping forward into midfield. Leuven clear the ball out of their box. Leuven's number nine, Thomas Henri, drops in and tries to get on the ball and settle it and regain possession for Leuven. But McKenzie follows him. He goes right with him, steps forward, beats Henri to the ball, wins it. Then he's immediately under pressure. Leuven are pressing him. And McKenzie says, "Okay, that's fine. He deals with the pressure just fine. He passes the ball with the outside of his right foot to a teammate, allowing Genk to move forward into the attacking third. Great speed, great pressure, great composure from Mark McKenzie. That's his game right now. Not so much the line breaking passes, but he adds a lot of defensive value. And that that's a good thing that has a lot of merit if it's Genk or even if it's the national team. But you still want to see him continue to develop the offensive side of his game.
1: All right. Any any other things you'd like to see him
2: develop or work on in, in the next games and the next couple of times we see him? I guess this is sort of in his control. It's also in his manager's control. I just want to see him on the field. I want to see him getting consistent mm-hmm. minutes. And that requires, you know, full mental intensity and training, full ability and training. But ultimately, that's down to the manager to decide. So if you're Mark McKenzie, continue to play like this, continue to go out and just be a little bit more aggressive with your passing. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, anything else with Mark McKenzie? No, I'm done. All right, then our final
1: American to be discussed is another one that Graham and I talked about, albeit briefly on the Weekend Review. It's Tyler Adams, who played a whole bunch of the game, if not the entire game, uh, for RB Leipzig at home in their 1-0 loss to Bayern Munich. And I thought, uh, I, I went in depth on how the goal for Bayern Was not necessarily his fault, though it might look like it was because he gets beaten by Thomas Muller's cutback and then sort of was had been responsible for Gretzka, who does score the goal. But you can listen to yesterday's show to hear about how that's not really his fault. I want to talk about some other things I saw from Tyler Adams in this game, if you don't mind, Mr. Lowry. Oh, please do hmm. So I want to talk about first off where he was playing. So Kevin Campbell was suspended for RB Leipzig for this game. So it was a midfield three of Haidara on the left, like central mid spot. Uh, Marcel Sabitzer in the middle and then Tyler Adams on the right, which made me think like, oh, he's going to be like a shuttling number eight. He's going to be involved in the attack a bit more than normal. And instead, he sort of did what we've come to expect from Tyler Adams, which was when Leipzig would build out. He was the one who was always dropping the deepest. He was the one who seemed to be the most uh, responsible for being the pivot, for being the connective tissue through the middle of the field when Leipzig were building, because I think they need Sabitzer further forward. They need his height if they want to go long, but they need his attacking presence further up the field. I think Haidara was stretching or pushing out wide to try to open up space. And so it became Adams who sat the deepest and connected things to the extent he could. But I also think this served a double purpose. I didn't notice this the first time I watched it. When I rewatched it, I noticed that when he's sitting deep, obviously that's to do everything I've already mentioned. But the other element is when Leipzig would lose the ball, he seemed to be the one, because generally speaking, he was closest in proximity to Thomas Muller, who was the sort of free-floating number 10 for Bayern. It seemed to be his responsibility to pick up Muller almost immediately, knowing that that was the player that Bayern most wanted to try to play through and counterattack with. So... Adams on the right-hand side of that central midfield, but then staying deep and then kind of roaming around to try to find Thomas Muller, at least in the first half, I thought were some really interesting nuances to his central midfield play, not just because he's dropping in and being on the ball, but because to have him be responsible for tracking the man who is most responsible for facilitating Bayern attacks is a lot of responsibility. And for the most part,
2: I think he handled it pretty well. I love that tweak from Julian Nagelsmann to say, yeah, you're not just playing as a right-sided central midfielder in a trio. You're going to do X, Y, and Z on top of that role. And I love it because Tyler Adams can handle that. He can handle dealing with Thomas Miller, or if he doesn't, he will learn and handle it better the next time. I'm confident in that. Tyler Adams is uniquely equipped, even on Leipzig, even in that squad. He's uniquely equipped to deal with players like Thomas Miller and track them and make their lives miserable. Uh, he, can, he can come and pick Leon Goretzka's pocket from time to time as well, and then he can see, okay, I need to drop and go deal with Thomas Muller. I think the role, at least defensively, was very well suited for him in this game. Well, very well suited to him in this game.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And I think there were moments, as there are always going to be, when you could point to some vulnerability or a lack of precision. He has one in the opening minutes, I think in the 15th minute. uh, Leipzig are trying to build out. Gulashi plays to Tyler Adams. There is, I think it's Chupa Motang is between the two of them as sort of he's the the number nine for Bayern. So he's trying to cut off that outlet pass. So Adams moves into space to then be open for the pass. Gulashi passes it to him as he's moving. And that's when I think Tyler Thomas, or excuse me, Tyler Adams realizes that, oh, there are Byron players pressing by like, pressing me immediately. And I think in checking to see that that kind of intensity of the pressure, he takes his eye off the ball. He miscontrols and it is a half chance for Byron. He gets yelled at by his goalkeeper, Taylor spotlight spotlighted this one in the broadcast. But I think. Number one, like that he doesn't then make that mistake again, doesn't let it hurt his confidence is, is a good thing. But it also shows, I think, how much was required of him to try to find some space, even in this build out, with how intense Byron's initial press was. So though it's a negative, I still see it as not being a wholly negative. The other aspects of his game, though, I thought were wholly positive, including that he as I said, is all over the field doing his defensive job, but then also helping build out of the back and then like facilitating attacks through the midfield. The other clip, Joe, I sent you, which was actually only half of the clip, I think the super long one, was when he drops between the center backs, combines with them, moves forward, becomes the pivot there, connects and passes there, then moves further forward and eventually gets a pass driven to him in traffic. He has two Byron players closing on him, and he tries to sort of do the turn and receive at the same time because otherwise he's going to lose the challenge. He doesn't get a clean touch to it, so now the ball rolls free. He is about 10 yards away from it. Uh, I forget which Byron player it is, but is maybe 5 yards away from it. And Adams is so focused, I think, because of the halftime talk. The way they came out for the second half was so much more aggressive and so much more energetic. Adams is on his horse, wins that ball, then drives forward, gets the ball back, plays a good pass wide. The uh, I think the ensuing cross is cut out, but it leads to a shot for Danny Omo that should have been at the very least on frame, if not a goal. And that's Tyler Adams starting between the center backs making a bunch of different passes happen winning back a ball from a pretty difficult pass to control then finding space out wide I just thought it was such a good sign of what he can be for Leipzig that I think it's why Nagelsmann likes him so much because he can play right back and right wing back if the situation requires but then he can be a number six or a number eight or a hybrid of the two and I think he he just sort of gets what Nagelsmann wants is able to execute what Nagelsmann wants and then brings in a little flair of his own, and I just think from, from top to bottom, it was a very strong performance from Tyler Adams, even with some of the miscontrols, even with the goal that ends up going against Leipzig and the eventual loss. I still think Tyler Adams can be pretty pleased with the overall performance.
2: I have a few Tyler Adams thoughts that I thought of or or had even before we had this conversation, and I'm hoping I don't forget any of them. So if I do, I apologize. I guess that's just really on me. That's not really something I need to apologize for, because you guys will never know that I forgot. Ha! But Mm -hmm. I will say, first of all, Taylor, that long clip that you sent me of Tyler Adams that you just kind of detailed, I love what you titled it. You titled it Tyler adams Human Engine, and it's so true, (laughs) right? That is the perfect description of his game and that clip, and I love that. So that was thought number one. Thought number two, going back to the the pass that Gulashi plays to Adams and Adams miscontrols it, it looked to me like the pass was slightly overhit, but either way, yeah. Adams checks his shoulder too late and he he turns the ball over in a very awesome. dangerous yeah. area. That continues to be a problem for Tyler Adams, and I expect it to continue to be a problem. For Tyler Adams, that's a major weak point in his game. It has been for the last couple of years. We haven't really seen that change so far. That's something that the U.S. national team is going to have to deal with and work around whenever Tyler Adams playing is playing as the number six. So that's still a problem. And then my third thought, when we see Tyler Adams make runs forward, like we did a little bit in the Human Engine clip, that is another reason why Yunus Musa is so important to the U.S. men's national team. In the March friendlies against Jamaica, specifically, Calvin Acosta was playing Tyler Adams' role. He was taking his job temporarily while Adams was still with Leipzig, and Acosta made a lot of runs forward into the attack, into areas higher up the field. And who was the guy that was covering for him? Who was the guy that was rotating back to make sure the U.S. wasn't exposed? It was Yunus Musa. Tyler Adams is going to do the same runs that Count Acosta did. He's going to make those same moves that Acosta made in those Jamaica games. Maybe not quite as aggressively, maybe not quite as frequently, but he's going to run forward because that's who he is as a player. And having someone like Yunus Musa who can cover him and make sure that the backline's not exposed, that's so important. I'm really looking forward to seeing hopefully a Nations League how Adams and Musa and McKenney or, or Legette or whoever in that midfield interact, specifically Adams and Musa, to see how they, they push and pull and cover and, and teeter totter Seesaw back and forth and, and keep things balanced in that midfield.
1: I agree. And I also agree with you that it's worth remembering that he does have those moments where maybe he can be a little bit sloppy in possession. Even if it's not wholly his fault, he can be better. He could be tighter. Yeah, maybe that's not the time to try that pass or not the time to control that ball. And I, and I appreciate you bringing that up specifically because I think when U.S. fans get frustrated by the pool and we, we are consistently concerned about this number six spot and what happens if Tyler Adams can't go and who could play it and who can deputize and why didn't Kellen Acosta do this? And Tyler Adams never makes that mistake. I think when you get frustrated by the other options, you then to some extent can, uh, like stop seeing the, Aspects of the other players career that need to develop that need to get better the skill sets that can be improved because you're so focused on nobody can do this job the way he can. I think that's true. I think Tyler Adams is our best option at number six. But I just, I like reminding people that he has like, like, uh, weaknesses in his game that just need to be developed. And he has things that he sometimes struggled with. We've talked about it in the past about him over pursuing when it's a loose ball that he thinks he can win. Sometimes he does. He did it this weekend. Other times he overpursues, doesn't get the ball, and now is wildly out of position. So it's worth remembering that there are deficiencies that we want to keep watching for and see how he improves or develops or removes outright. But it's still just a good thing to know that Tyler Adams, a very good player, still has stuff to work on. And we should remember that and be patient uh, and uh, accommodating his fans.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And, and just to close out my thoughts here, I thought it was awesome that he got the start in central midfield in this game. We've seen him so yep. much out wide on the right for Leipzig. It was nice to see, even though it's likely because Kevin Campbell was out for this game, it's nice to see Tyler Adams get minutes in midfield because that's where we're going to see him with the national team. It's good to get that parallel and get more of a, a get more sample size, get a bigger sample size on Adams in those central spaces. I agree
1: entirely, my friend. So I think that is a good note to end on when we're agreeing entirely and
2: we're pretty <laughs> optimistic about the U.S. Uh Joe, any other things you'd like to discuss before we call this one a day? I don't think so, man. We've got some good stuff coming the rest of this week, too. So you're going to get to hear plenty of my voice over the next couple of days. You probably don't want you probably don't want any more of that than you have to, you know.
1: I always do. Uh, And Joe is correct. We will have a lot a lot more content to come. Joe is going to be with me tomorrow, along with Graham Ruffin, to break down today, Tuesday's uh, Champions League games, maybe a little CONCACAF Champions League, maybe some Lister questions as well. Thursday, Ryan Bailey will be back, and it will be the three of us breaking down Wednesday's Champions League games. And then Friday, we've got Allocation Disorder. Joe, uh, anything else to plug to talk about before we call this one a day? I have exhausted my plugs. I've got nothing left. All right. All right, Joe, then I will just say thank you very much for talking about the many Americans abroad in action this past weekend. Of course. <laughs> Listeners, thank you all for listening to us talk about the many Americans abroad in action this past weekend. Whew, that was a mouthful that I committed to. Uh, we very much appreciate it. And we will talk to you all again very soon.